If you have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39, the danger of willful sin. This is what we've been covering the last two weeks. It will take us into July as we begin to understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us. This is not an easy portion of Scripture to, to deal with, but it is an essential portion of Scripture we must deal with. We must understand the danger of willful sin. We must understand the danger of apostasy. We must understand exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain to us so that we understand where these people were and what he was trying to convince them of as he presented to them Jesus Christ in all of his supremacy, in all of his sufficiency. Now, it is true that that a portion of Scripture like this causes us to examine our lives, which is a good thing. Because if you recall way back when we started the book of Hebrews, we wanted you to understand that the book of Hebrews will lead you to do six things. Number one, it will always lead you to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The book of Hebrews is all about the exaltation of Christ. And so when you read the book of Hebrews and study the book of Hebrews, it will lead you to exaltation. Second, it will lead you to expectation. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 11, there's always this expectation of the coming promises of God. So when you study the book of Hebrews, you are led to a level of expectation, always anticipating what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. So not only does it lead you to exaltation and expectation, but it also leads you to exhortation. Because in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews says these words, verse number 20, uh, verse number 22, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. In other words, this is a word of exhortation. It's a word of comfort. It's a word of movement. And so as you read the book of Hebrews, you're moved to action. And so when you read and study the book of Hebrews, this is where you're being led to. And then, of course, number four, you're led to explanation. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to explain to you the identity of the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah, and then your responsibility in light of who the Messiah is. And then it leads you, number five, to excitation. In other words, there's an excitability about the book. Because he who believes in me, 1 Peter 2.6, will never be disappointed. Nobody ever came to Christ and was disappointed in who he is or what he did. And then number six, the book of Hebrews always leads you to examination. Because he writes to those who are possessors, some who are professors, and some who are protesters. There are those who profess Christianity that end up protesting Christianity. But there are those who possess Christianity. And that's where the examination comes in. Are you one who truly possesses the Christ? Or are you one who simply just professes Christianity? And that one day you might protest against all that Christ is and what he stands for. That's the danger 
in willful sin. That's why there are these warning passages all throughout the book of Hebrews. Five of them. We're studying number four at this point to help you understand that the reason they're there is because he wants you to examine where you stand with Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important. So we are looking and have looked at the description of apostasy. We've also help you understand not just the description of apostasy, but we want you also to realize the repercussions of apostasy. And then we gave you last week the illustration of apostasy. The illustration was Judas. The repercussions are an absence of a sacrifice and the assurance of judgment. The description, well, that's laid out for you in verse number 26 of Hebrews 10 when it says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Apostasy is willful sinning amidst the knowledge of the truth. You know the truth, You might even have received the truth, accepted the truth, believed the truth. But when push comes to shove, you no longer want to follow the truth. And you fall away from the truth. And Hebrews 6 tells us you're in danger of coming to a place where you will never be able to repent of your sins. So we told you two weeks ago that apostasy is an unforgivable sin. So, that leads us to point number four, a clarification surrounding apostasy. Let me clarify two things for you this morning, just two. One is how can there be sins that are unforgiven? I thought Christ forgave all sin. How can there be a sin that's unforgivable? Well, the Bible tells us this in Psalm 86, verse number 5. Lord, you are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon thee. We understand that. We believe that. We understand Daniel 9, verse number 9. To the Lord belongs forgiveness. We understand Psalm 103, verse number 3. For our Lord pardons all of our iniquities. We also understand Psalm 34, verse number 6, when the Lord said this to Moses, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then over in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7, verse number 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging, unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We read verses like that and these Jewish people, this Hebrew audience knows about the Old Testament God who forgives abundantly because that's who God is. He is a forgiving God. 
And so the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, listen, if you understand who this God is and yet you continue in willful sin, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for you, but a fearful, terrifying expectation of judgment, which would cause them to, to scratch their heads and say, well, wait a minute, I thought God, God just forgives sins. Why would he not forgive my sin? How can I stand unforgiven before God if he's abundant in loving kindness and forgiveness? He stands ready to forgive. And then you read the Old Testament. He forgave Adam and Eve. He forgave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all their sin. He forgave King David his sin. He forgave Israel of their sin. You mean to tell me now he's not going to forgive me of my sin? If I continue in willful sin? It's a great question, isn't it? Jesus even said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Did he not say that? Of course he did. But that doesn't mean that everybody on Mount Calvary was forgiven, but he extended forgiveness to all who were there because you know, and I know, that forgiveness is not unconditional. It's conditional. It's conditioned on repentance. It's conditioned on forgiveness. It's conditioned in coming in faith to the living God and believing in who he is and what he said. And all those who repent in faith, turning from their wicked ways and embracing Christ as Lord and Savior, truly would be forgiven of their sins. But there are those who profess that, but yet they live lives contrary to that, and they live in willful sin. Now, you and I will never know if that person has committed apostasy or not. Only God knows that. That's why this text is so crucial. Because I can't pass judgment on you and you can't pass judgment on me. Only God can do that. We don't know if you're in sin for a while or if you've fallen away completely and fully from sin. Because we know that Peter fell into sin and he fell away from the Lord, but he was forgiven. So how is it then there can be unforgiving sin or unforgiven sin in the lives of of certain people who profess Christianity. It's because they truly don't possess the Christ. And they protest against him, having received the full knowledge of him, coming to know who he is and what he's done, realizing that he is the only sacrifice for sin, and that's what the writer of Hebrews has done for 10 chapters and 18 verses. Explain to them everything about the Messiah, why he's totally supreme, why he's completely sufficient, and why they need to give their lives to him because everything about what the Old Testament pointed to is wrapped up in Jesus, the Messiah. So there needs to be a clarification. And that clarification centers around what's commonly called the unpardonable sin had several of you asked me this question over the last couple of weeks. So I thought, I just will address it with you. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Remember in Matthew 11, 
Verse 28, Christ says these words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how chapter 11 ends. And then in chapter 13, Christ begins to speak in parables. And in Matthew 13, it says in verse number 3, and he spoke many things to them, <clears throat> excuse me, in parables. And then verse number 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. And he goes back and he quotes from the book of Isaiah these words. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. In other words, because of Israel's willful rejection, there then became a judicial rejection. In other words, because of their willful sin, there became a judicial sentence against that willful sin as was prophesied by Isaiah. So in chapter 11, Christ says, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. In chapter 13, it says, in hearing, they will not hear, and in seeing, they will not see. I've passed judgment upon them. Why? Because of what takes place in chapter 12 of Matthew. So if you're there, hopefully you're there, Matthew 12, verse number 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. This was a fabulous miracle. All the miracles are fabulous of Jesus, right? But this is unique and special because it's a design miracle to provoke a divine response by those around him. And so he, he knows what's going on in the mind of the Pharisees. If you take Mark's account in this whole scenario, he knows what they're saying. Now remember, in verse 14 of Matthew 22, it says this, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So in chapter 11, he says, come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. In chapter 12, it says, the Pharisees have conspired together on how to destroy the Messiah. Now Jesus knows that. And because he knows that, he sets up a scenario where he heals a demon-possessed man who cannot speak and is blind. Very important to the story. Not that he's just demon-possessed, but he can't speak and he can't see. So Jesus, he, Jesus heals him. 
Now listen to the response. And the crowd, all the crowd were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? This man can't be the son of David. Now who's the son of David? That's the promised seed. That's the Messiah. Is Jesus the Messiah? Interestingly, in verse number 18, Isaiah 42 is quoted because Isaiah 42 paints a picture of the Messiah and what he would do when he arrived. It's very important to the story. Listen to what it says. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, that's the son of David, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, and remember at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Taken from Isaiah chapter 42. So he says this, I will put my spirit upon him. Very important to the story. Because it sets the tone for the identity of the Messiah. Those words are recorded. Jesus calls, calls the lame man to him, the demon-possessed man to him. He calls the blind man to himself, and he heals him instantaneously. Notice there's no fanfare. Notice there's no publicity. Notice there's nothing about being on TV or being in the Jerusalem Post. It's all about Jesus healing the man instantaneously, no fanfare, because when you're a true miracle worker, you don't have fanfare. Don't need fanfare. Because you do it truthfully and honestly. I wanted to say something, but I'll, I'll, I'll let that go. So he heals the man. They're all amazed. Could this be the Messiah? Well, see, that infuriates the Pharisees. Because, you see, they don't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're against that. So listen to what the story says. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. In other words, this man is casting out demons by Satan's power. You see, they were in a, in a, between a rock and a hard place because what Jesus did was supernatural. And so because it was supernatural, there had to be an explanation. How do they explain this away? Well, if he's God in the flesh, he's the Messiah of Israel, they would have to affirm his Messiahship. They're not about to do that. They despise Jesus. But yet they've seen all the miracles. They've heard the sermons. They've heard the stories of the miracles and the stories of the sermons. They're without excuse, you see. And so either they affirm he is the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, who, by the way, is divine because the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah would be divine, or because it's supernatural miracles, he must be of Satan. And that was their out. That's how they were going to convince the people that he wasn't the Messiah. So the Bible says this, and knowing their thoughts, don't you love that? 
I love that because you know what? I have no idea what you're thinking right now. I don't have to know what you're thinking. The Lord knows what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. And I'm really, I'm really good with that. Because you see, I don't have to deal with you. The Lord will deal with you. See? Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows exactly what they're thinking. They're at the back of the crowd. This man does this by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. He knows exactly what they're thinking. So, this is what he says. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, are you guys really thinking this? Are you really saying this? Why would Satan destroy Satan's purposes? Why would he come against himself? Satan's not going to divide himself. He's not going to come against himself. He wants to be as strong as possible. And then he, then he puts their backs against the wall by saying this, for if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hmm. You see, they had disciples. They had followers. And they approved of their followers casting out demons. So Christ puts their backs against the wall and says, okay, you tell me. If I'm doing this by Beelzebul, the prince of the ruler of the demons, tell me, how is it your sons do this? How is it your followers accomplish this? And he says this, for this reason, they will be your judges. You see, if they come back and say, well, they do it by Satan too, they just discredited their whole ministry. But they can't say that. They would only say it's done under the power of God. But they can't say that either. Because then they have to affirm that Jesus is God. He's doing it under the power of God. And what they just thought and what they just said would be irrelevant. So Jesus puts their backs against the wall. But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now remember, earlier in verse number 18, it says, what? I will put my spirit upon him. We know from Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, that the shoot that stems from Jesse, whose title is the branch, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Right? We know that. That's what the Old Testament prophet said. And then it gives the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit that will rest upon the Messiah. We know that when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of the Lord descended on him, on him like a dove. So there was something supernatural about his baptism. And then we know from Luke's account and from Matthew's account that the Spirit of the Lord drove the Son of Man into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And then we know from Luke's account that it was the Spirit of God that drove him from city to city to preach the message. In other words, now you understand Philippians 2, the great self-emptying of the Messiah, the great kenosis, where he sets aside his divine attributes because he is going to be in, uh, encumbered by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is going to work fully and freely within the Messiah, 
Because that was the promised prophecy of Isaiah 11. Isaiah 61, when he stood up in the synagogue of Nazareth, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, right? He tells them that the spirit of God is upon him. He's reading from Isaiah 61. And he tells them, this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's affirming the fact that the spirit of God's upon him. He's affirming the fact that the spirit of God's already anointed him. It's already come upon him. He's doing everything he does through the energy and power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he came to live in obedience to the Father and energized by the Spirit. Because his obedience to the Father and energy through the Spirit would confirm his divine messianic credentials. And that's how it was set up in the Old Testament for it to happen. So Jesus now says, if I do these things by the Spirit of God, which he is, because the Spirit of God would be upon the Messiah, he is the son of David, he says these words. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, the king is here. The son of David is the king. In the son of David is the king, he brings the kingdom. The kingdom is here. And what I'm doing is fully energized by the Spirit of God. Or, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he plunders the house? I'm the strong guy. Satan's the weak guy. I am destroying the works of the devil. And the only way I can do that is because I'm the strong guy. He's the weak guy. Then he says these words, verse number 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, are you ready for this? Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Stop right there. Any sin and any blasphemy shall be forgiven people. He affirms that if you blaspheme the name of God, forgiveness is available. If you sin, whatever that sin may be, forgiveness is available. I don't care how gross that sin is, how debauched that sin is. I don't care what the number of sins there are. Our God is a forgiving God. If any man sins or blasphemes, that sin, that blasphemy will be forgiven. What does it mean to blaspheme the name of God? Listen carefully. It means to say something untrue about him. Now that means everybody in the room is blaspheming the name of God. Say, wait a minute, can a Christian blaspheme God? Absolutely. Peter did in Mark 14. Paul was a blasphemer, 1 Timothy 1, verse number 13. I was formerly a blasphemer, right? Colossians chapter 3. Remember Colossians chapter 3? It says these words, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, that means you're a believer, when Christ who is your life is revealed, in other words, Christ is your life, you're a believer, right? Verse 5, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them, but now... You also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. See that? 
and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with his evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, if the life of Christ is in you, yes, you can blaspheme the name of God. You can speak ill of God. You can say something about him that's not true. That's why in Isaiah 45, God says this, cursed is anyone, cursed is anyone who doubts the sovereignty of God. Why? Because you're blaspheming the name of God. You're speaking evil against God, right? If you think a thought that's incongruous with his attributes, you've blasphemed the name of God. If you speak against God in any way, you've blasphemed his name. You've denied the trueness of his character. If you doubt that your God is a forgiving, loving, kind, merciful God, in any way, you've blasphemed his name. If you doubt the sovereignty of, sovereignty of God over your life and all of life's events, you've blasphemed his name because he's sovereign. And so you've got to be careful. That's why Jesus says these words. I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. In other words, when you treat God with defiance or irreverence, you blaspheme his name. It is sin. But yet forgiveness is possible. That's good news, isn't it? I think you should all say amen to that one. I mean, come on. That, that, that affects every one of us, right? Now listen carefully. But, ah, oh, the buttologies of Scripture. They are so clean and true. But, but, blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoa. What do you mean? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Why is that? Why is it I can speak a word against the Son of Man, but I can't speak a word against the Spirit of God? If I speak a word against the Son of Man, I'm forgiven. But if I speak a word against the Son of God, or the Spirit of God, I am not forgiven. I have blasphemed his name, and I'm not forgiven. Why is that? Well, the Son of Man is that title that Christ took for himself in his humanity. And that title is out of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where Daniel had a vision of the Messiah, one like a Son of Man descending from the heavens, right? And Christ was identifying himself with Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 when he called himself the Son of Man. But... If you speak evil against the Son of Man, if you speak against the Son of Man, if you speak against his humanity, it shall be forgiven you. In other words, you say things like, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Speaking against the Son of Man. You can say things like, is not this the carpenter's son? Speaking evil against the Son of Man in his humanity. Or you say things like, how is it that this man eats and drinks with sinners? You're speaking against the Son of Man, but if you speak a word against the Spirit of God, that sin shall not be forgiven. Why is that? Simply because the Spirit of God, who is divine, 
would energize the Son of God who is divine. And the Spirit of God would prove the Son of God is divine. And because the Spirit of God proves the Son of God is divine through all the energy he infuses him with, because that's how Christ operated, totally dependent upon the Spirit of God. That Spirit would prove the deity of Christ. And if you speak against that Spirit, you're speaking against Christ. And having seen all the things that have happened through this Messiah, who's energized by the Spirit of God, and you've seen the miracles, you've seen him walk on water, you've seen him calm the sea, you've seen him feed thousands and thousands of people, you've seen him heal the lame, the blind, right? The deaf, the dumb, the demon-possessed. You've seen all those things, and yet you say, okay, that's Satan. You are attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. And when you do that, you have continued in willful sin, you have continued to live the life that protests the identity of Christ. And when you see all of the proof before you and hear all that proof, and your conclusion is, that's Satan. That blasphemes the Spirit of God. And you are in a position of being unforgivable. Now listen carefully to what it says. It says these words. Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, in this age right here, it will not be forgiven. Nor in the age to come. Question is, what's that age? It is not the church age. Because they didn't know anything about the church age. They had no idea what the church age was. The age to come is what? The kingdom age. Why? Because you see, when Christ was on earth, energized by the Spirit of God, he was before the people doing everything right in front of their eyes. When will he do that again? In the age to come, which is that? The kingdom age, when Christ comes back again and rules and reigns on this earth, and again, he heals people while he's here. He does miraculous works while he's here because he is the Messiah. And you attribute what he does to Satan, it's unforgivable. So not just in this age, the age in which Christ was here with the apostles, but in the age to come, the kingdom age. Meaning that Matthew 12, the unpardonable sin, cannot be committed today. It could have only been committed then and committed in the kingdom age to come. But apostasy still happens, which puts you in a place of being unforgivable based on the book of Hebrews and the five warning passages in Hebrews. That's why it says these words in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, these Hebrew people knew that, right? Anybody who sins against the law of Moses dies on the basis of two or three witnesses. We all think that the Old Testament God was so harsh 
I got news for you. The New Testament God is more harsh than the Old Testament God. Now, same God, right? Same God. But we think the Old Testament, oh, they were, he was so harsh. He was killing people right and left. And oh, man, oh, I'm glad I'm under the age of grace. But let me tell you something about the age of grace. God's wrath is harder now than it was then. How do we know that? Right of Hebrews tells you, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted, what? The Spirit of grace. See that? There is a severer punishment in this church age than there was in the Old Testament when man was penalized because on the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses and he was judged. But let me tell you something. There is a severer punishment in this age. Why? Because you have seen and heard more than they ever did in the Old Testament. You are really accountable. You are fully responsible. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 2, when he gave the first warning, he said this, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs, wonders, various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So they saw the gifts of the apostles. They witnessed the signs and miraculous gifts of the apostles. Not only that, they have all of the book of Hebrews given to them by this writer who proves to them everything in the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah, and the Messiah is here. They have much more knowledge, much more available to them than anybody in the Old Testament did. So that's why he says, remember the law of Moses? And the testimony of two or three? Ah, there was punishment. Judgment, right? Oh, but let me tell you something. There's something more severe. There's a severer punishment for all those who trample underfoot the Son of God, who insult the Spirit of grace. You come against the, the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You are saying, you know what? I've heard it. I've seen it. But you know what? I don't believe it. I'm turning away from that. I'm not accepting that. Or maybe at one time you accepted that. And believed it and thought, wow, this is the way to go. But then all of a sudden, the persecution comes. And the difficulty set in. You say, ah, I'm out of here. This is not what I bargained for. And you turn away from the faith, never to walk with the Lord again. The danger of sinning willfully. Not easy to talk about. Absolutely essential for us to understand. That's why we've given you a description of apostasy, the repercussions of apostasy, the illustration of apostasy, a clarification about apostasy. And guess what? Next week, we're going to give you the prevention from apostasy. How do you know you don't go down that path? How do you refrain from taking what God has said and continuing to sin willfully? The writer of Hebrews tells us. He spells it out very clearly for us. We're going to show you to you next week. So you've got to come back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. A chance that you give us to look into your word. 
So much is there. So much to understand. So much yet to cover, Lord. We have so much yet to discuss. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would work in all of our hearts. If there's anybody here today who is questioning whether or not they're truly born again, wondering, may they come talk to us that we might explain to them the truth of your word. Someone here has hardened their heart. We pray, Lord, that you would take your word like a hammer and, and crush it. They might respond in obedience to your word and follow you, Lord. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.